Um, so we're going to conclude our studies this evening uh, in the book of Nehemiah. And uh, good to see everybody online this evening. So if you turn to chapter 12, let's um, break in at chapter 12, Nehemiah chapter 12, verse 27. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites out of all their places to bring them to Jerusalem, to keep the dedication, the dedication with gladness, both with thanksgivings and with singing, with cymbals, psalteries and with harps. And the sons of the singers gathered themselves together, both out of the plain country round about Jerusalem and from the villages of Nephatali, also from the house of Gilgal and out of the fields of Geba, and as Marveth, for the singers had builded them villages round about Jerusalem, and the priests and the Levites purified themselves and purified the people and the gates and the wall. Then I brought up the princes of Judah upon the wall and appointed two great companies of them that gave thanks, whereof one went on the right hand upon the wall towards the Dungate. And, uh, and we'll, we'll just leave that there. So we have two companies on the wall and they're making a procession round the wall um verse 36 at the end of verse 36 see what it says there um the the these men that are going around the wall uh, with musical instruments of david the man of god and ezra the scribe before them so that's ezra there going up one side of the wall of jerusalem and then verse 38 uh, and the other company of them that gave thanks went over over against them opposite them uh, over against them in the King James, but opposite them effectively. Um, and I after them, that's Nehemiah writing there, the first person, and the half of the people upon the wall from beyond the tower of the furnaces, even unto the broad wall. So imagine these two, uh, two uh, groups of people uh, making a procession around the wall. Verse 40, so stood the two companies of them that gave thanks in the house of God, and I and the half of the rulers with me. Verse 43, also that day they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The wives also and the children rejoiced, so that the joy of Jerusalem was heard even afar off. Um, and we'll leave it there. Uh, we won't, we'll make reference to some of those other verses, but coming now to chapter 13. On that day, they read in the book of Moses in the uh, audience of the people, and therein was found written and the, that the Ammonite and the Moabite should not come into the congregation of God forever, because they met not the children of Israel with bread and with water, but hired Balaam. This is referring to a story in the book of Numbers when a, um, a, a, a bad prophet called Balaam um, spoke against them that he should curse them. Albeit our God turned the curse into a blessing. Now it came to pass when they had heard the law that they separated from Israel all the mixed multitude. And before this, Eliashib the priest, having the oversight of the chamber of the house of our God, was allied unto Tobiah. Remember Tobiah from earlier on in our studies, um, uh, one of the opposing forces to the project to rebuild the wall. Uh, one of the opposing forces from without. And he had prepared for him a great chamber where before time they had laid the meat offerings, the frankincense and the vessels and the tithes of the corn 
the new wine and the oil which was commanded to be given to the Levites and the singers and the porters and the offerings of the priests. But in all this time was not I at Jerusalem, for in the two and thirtieth year, the thirty-second year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, came I unto the king, and after certain days obtained I leave of the king, when I came to Jerusalem and understood of the evil that Eliashib did for Tobiah. So this this um, uh, apartment that was supposed to store all the uh, materials that were needed for the service of the Levites was had been turned into a bed and breakfast for uh, for Tobiah. And uh, Nehemiah comes back and, and finds all this. And it grieved me sore, verse 8. Therefore I cast forth all the household stuff of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I commanded and they cleansed the chambers and brought again the vessels of the house of God with the meat offerings and the frankincense. Verse 10. And I perceived that the portions of the Levites had not been given them. The Levites and the singers that did the work were fled every one to his field. So there's also a problem here of the Levites not getting their portion. They were supposed to be allocated a portion from all the uh, peoples of the, the nation because they didn't work. So they had to um, they had to be served by the by the, the, the tribes of Israel, the other tribes of Israel. Um, but they weren't. So they had to go to work because there was no provision made for them. Uh, verse 11, then contended I with the rulers and said, why is the house of God forsaken? Verse 15, in those days saw I in Judah some treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in sheaves and lading asses. as also wine, grapes and uh, figs and all manner of burdens which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I testified against them in the day wherein they sold victuals. So they were also not uh, sustaining the uh, the Sabbath um, blessing either. And then finally, in, in verse 23, in those days also, I saw Jews that have married wives of Ashdod and Ammon and of Moab. And their children spake half in the speech of Ashdod and could not speak in the Jews language, but according to the language of each people. And I contended with them and cursed them and smote certain of them and plucked off their hair and made them swear, made them made them make an oath by God, saying, you shall not give your daughters unto their sons, nor take their daughters unto your sons or yourself. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin by uh, these things? And we'll leave the reading. Um, well, let's just read the, the closing verses of, of the book. Um, it would perhaps be appropriate to do that. Um, verse uh, 29. Remember them, you're speaking of the, uh, the high priests and, and, the, and the priests who had uh, failed in their service for God. Remember them, O oh my God, because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and of the Levites. Thus cleansed I them from all strangers and appointed the words, wards, the, the wards is an old fashioned word for uh, the areas of responsibility uh, of the priests and the Levites, everyone in his business, and for the wood offering at times appointed and for the first fruits. Remember me. Oh, my God, for good. <clears throat> and uh, we just trust that God will help us as we uh, conclude our studies in the book of Nehemiah. Now, if this was a Bible reading, which it was uh, intended uh, to, we could have a, probably a, a more interesting discussion 
about the different ways that you would view the end of the book of Nehemiah. Um, I, I will give you my um, uh, my reading of it. I, this is not I don't want to be dogmatic this evening at all. And I, I don't want to be contrary either um, in, in what I have to say. Um, <clears throat> but I, I I feel like between reading between the lines in the best sense of that phrase, um, it, well, it's fairly clear that all is not well at the end of the book of Nehemiah. And it really ends on, on quite an anticlimax. And so um, since it's not a Bible reading, we don't have the opportunity to get those different perspectives. Um, you'll have to you'll have to bear with me. I, once we're back together again, we could have perhaps a more um, interesting conversation about the different perspectives about the closing of the book. Um, so don't take what I say as sort of um, as, as, you know, uh, the, the, the end of the matter um, this evening. I'll just put it to you as, as how I read it um, and how I feel the spirit of God has sort of um, directed me in my study. Um, but but. Given that it does end on a, on a bit of a down, down, down note here, um, I'm going to uh, sort of title what we, we, we look at this evening, um, as you can see on the slide here, what the law could not do. And that's a reference to a verse in Romans, which we'll come back to later. So <clears throat> over chapter 12 and chapter 13, we could write um, two subtitles. Chapter 12 is dedication. And as uh, I, I was conversing with Steve about this earlier on in the week, if, if as, as Steve mentioned to me, if, if the book ended at the end of chapter 12 or even just uh, um, pushing into the early verses of chapter 13, um, it would be a great, a great ending. It would be, be you know, a, a great sort of uh, high point because uh, they, they had this wonderful procession around the wall. They dedicated it. Uh, they reinstated things that had been uh, been, been left <clears throat> undone for a long time, but it doesn't end there. It ends in chapter 13. And so over that, I, I've written the title malfunction. Uh, things had things had fallen apart by the time Nehemiah comes back from a, a short um, a short return to the, uh, the the empire from which he came. So th those are two sort of titles that we'll use to frame our discussion this evening. Now, because we're closing the book off here um, and I want to set everything I'm going to say in context, it's just perhaps worth um, recapping on the book of it as a whole. Chapters one to six um, deal with the, the rebuilding of the wall. The temple was finished because if we read Nehemiah in conjunction with Ezra, then we see that Ezra had come back and he had reinstated worship and he had supported the the reinstatement of the temple um project uh the the contemporary prophets with with ezra had struggled to get the people of god uh, to rebuild and, and so uh, prophets like haggai had had a ministry there but ezra was the the one that, that supported the reinstatement of the temple operations the challenge that we saw when we looked at chapters one to six was that there was opposition, opposition from within and opposition from without. As we close the book this evening, we're looking at the second half of the book where the plan is to rebuild the community. Once Nehemiah um, has completed the rebuilding of the, the wall, uh, chapter seven, verse one. I'll just read that. You can turn there if you want with me. 
chapter 7, verse uh, 1. Now it came to pass when the wall was built and I had set up the doors and the porters and the singers and Levites were appointed. Um, now look at verse 4. Now the city was large and great, but the people were few therein and the houses were not builded. So Nehemiah comes back with this this uh, burden on his heart that the God had placed on his heart. We know that from chapter two, that it was a the motive and the uh, the persuasion of his, of his being was very much different from the heart. He'd come back to, to Jerusalem with his project to rebuild the wall, but he realized once he rebuilt the wall that he needed to uh, rebuild the community. There was this massive city with all these walls rebuilt, but nobody living in them. And no no community, no no movement of peoples, no functioning economy, and nobody to nobody to go to the temple they all were living in their little villages and so the wall was finished but the city was empty and what we see in this half of the book is that there is ambition there is definitely ambition to to rebuild community but there's no internal renewal there's it's it all seems very external a lot of the now that's not that's not a broad that is a broad brush statement that's not a that there are exceptions to that these are broad brush statements there is this there's a sense of external ambition to rebuild the community um, and to make Jerusalem great again. But there, to me, there seems to be to me, there seems to be a lack of internal renewal. You, you may challenge that. And, and it's not a uh, you know, uh, it's not a sort of a um, something I would I would argue over. But to me, there does seem to be a lack of internal renewal. And I explain what that means uh, as we go through this evening. So we're now in the second half of, of the book. Uh, those are very, very small points, aren't they? I can barely see them. Um, sorry, they're a, bit, a little bit tiny. I think you can zoom in if you um, have controls on the right hand side. You might be able to zoom in. I'm going to need to because I can barely read that. So um, just tying in with what Phil had said last week, in chapters eight, you have um, the re you have the starting at the start of this rebuilding community. So chapter eight is communal education. Ezra gets up, starts reading God's word and educates the people, teaches the people uh, about what God's word has to say. You can't you can rebuild a wall uh, without the word of God. You know, the word of God doesn't have much to say about uh, how to rebuild a wall. Um, but it does have an awful lot to say about the rebuilding of community uh, uh, in, inside that wall. Um, and then that's followed by a celebration. Remember, we, we looked at that. The. The celebration uh, in chapter eight of the um, Feast of Tabernacles. Chapter nine, you have communal confession, uh, the confession of, of, of the people for their failures, uh, a long, long prayer, um, essentially, uh, of, of the people's confession. And then that that sort of uh, spans over into what Phil touched on last week, which was this commitment by the community, this covenant that was made by the community. Uh, to keep the law of God, and there were there were um, the, the, my my in my study of it, I just sort of broke that down. And did, actually, uh, if I'm absolutely honest, these points here, if you can see them on chapter ten, they're not my points at all. Um, they're they're cribbed from somebody else's notes. Um, four points: submitting to God's word, separation from the world, sustaining the Sabbath, and supporting the work. And you can look at those in chapter ten. 
And then uh, Phil dealt with that last week, the uh, the different groups that made up this the community. Because if you uh, if you want uh, Jerusalem to be filled again, you've got to fill it with uh, with people, godly people, ideally um, people that have a, an ambition for the truth of the word of God. Um, so that's rebuilding the community, chapters 8, 9, 10. So this brings us now to um, 11, and this brings us now to chapter 12, which I entitled Dedication. So you've got this situation where the, the wall has been rebuilt. <clears throat> There's this movement amongst the people of God to recommence the celebration of, of feasts and recommence temple worship and re-energize the, the economy uh, of Jerusalem by um, and making it a great city again, making it the city of God, you know, where, where people want to come and they want to uh, meet the people of God and they want to seek, they want to um, uh, learn about Jehovah. Uh, and, it, you know, it's a bustling city. That's that's the idea. And in chapter 12, um, there is this dedication of the wall. In verse 30, the priests and the Levites, it says, purified themselves and purified the people and the gates and the walls. There's purification, first of all. Um, these uh, purification um, guidelines were all set down in the Pentateuch as to how you would purify uh, priests. And so they are evidencing here a, a an agreement, a consensus with what the, the word of God has to say. This is all good. This is all very positive. And then there's a procession in verses 31 to 40. We um, just read a few select verses. And I pointed that Ezra went up one side in verse 36 and Nehemiah went up the other. Um, you remember this um, this uh, map that I, I, I gave out? I think I, I yeah, I, I began uh, I study in Nehemiah and here we are at the end again. And so um, just as we began, it's useful to as we end here, it's useful to look at this uh, map, which is shown um, uh, not uh, it's not true north there. Um, north is is kind of east. So down at the bottom here, let me get my, um, my drawing tool so we can see what we're looking at. Um, let's go for that color there. So this is uh, the east gate here. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I can't remember which side now, but Ezra would have come up one side and you can look at chapter 12 for the details. Nehemiah would have gone up one side. And it, Nehemiah begins, yeah, he begins, they, that's right, they do begin at the Dung Gate. They begin here. This is where Nehemiah began, remember, in chapter two, is it, where he starts to um, do his reconnaissance around, around the city and see, uh, see what the damage is like. And so they begin at the Dungate and they, they, they move up to the Temple Mount um, on both sides. And then they stand on the Temple Mount in verse 40 and they, they start singing songs. Um, not everyone is, is musical. Not everyone is um, uh, sort of leans towards um, celebration uh, uh, through through song. But it, it is a, a big um it is a big thing in the Old Testament, the, the use of song to celebrate. And um, so in verses 40 to 43, we have this celebration and sacrifices are offered 
as well. And it, we read in verse 43, if you look at it with me, verse 43, the end, it says, the joy of Jerusalem was heard afar off. It doesn't say the singing. Um, I think one commentary I, I read uh, pointed out that it wasn't the, the tuneful singing. Uh, it wasn't the, uh, the wonderful harmony. It was just the joy. And um, there's a little practical point there, isn't there, that um, when the, the when the people of God come together, which we are somewhat prohibited from doing, although even in our homes we can celebrate. Um, we 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 have a, I have a, we have a piano here, as you know. We, we we've been doing a little bit of this uh, since we may as well. Uh, we we've been singing songs as a family, um, but. And I know I you know, don't know whether our neighbours hear our harmony or our tuneful singing, but maybe maybe um, if we are singing loud enough and I'm we're playing loud enough on the piano, maybe they detect something um, unusual about what we're doing. Um, and hopefully they will detect our joy. Um, and maybe that even in itself will become a, a, uh, a source of conversation. I don't know. But when when. When people come into our company, uh, when they have in the past and when they might in the future, do they detect our joy? I, I don't know whether they would necessarily from my, um, my body language, my facial expressions. Um, I'm not going to speak about anybody else because I have to think about myself. But do I, do I display joy as I sing and as I celebrate uh, what God has done? That's just a little practical point here. Um, by way of passing. So chapter 12 um, is a, a wonderful chapter and it's wonderful to see the, the people of God coming together. We don't dedicate buildings anymore. In fact, dedication of buildings wasn't really that prevalent in the Old Testament. Um, Solomon dedicated the temple um, and there was a sort of dedication, I suppose, when, when the tabernacle went up. But it it's not a it's not a feature, really, of, of things in the Old Testament. Um, but I have been to some uh, some some churches, that is, groups of, of Christians that have met together in buildings that are new, and they have a conference. And it's a good it's a good thing to do. It's not not a not think something you must do. But it's a good thing to gather together when God has um, blessed us in by means of establishing. A, play, a physical place where his people can meet. It's a good thing to celebrate that um, and to open the word of God and to sing um, as they did here. Not, not, not saying that's something that has to be done. It's not, not, not a sort of a, a doctrinal thing, but there are some principles here um, which we can apply as it is that God uh, blesses us with physical places uh, to meet. And of course, we know that even without a physical place, without a uh, building, um, it's still something that we can do in any case. So that's chapter twelve, and uh, a lot is a lot is made of these singers at the end of the the chapter twelve, um, which you might want to look at uh, for your own study. Um, it was something that David had uh, established. It was a a family thing, a family affair primarily, um, the family of Asaph. Um, but we'll leave that we'll leave that there for the time being. So if that was the the end of the book of Nehemiah, um, it would be a lovely end to the book. 
Um, and given that, let me show you this uh, picture here. Given that Nehemiah chronologically is actually at the end of our Old Testament, it would be a wonderful end to the Old Testament. Uh, our books and our Old Testaments, most of you know this, but not all. They're not organized chronologically. So Chronicles, you can see in the middle of that picture there, um, they are at the end of our Bibles. And Chronicles ends on a fairly high note. So it gives us this sort of, uh, it gives us this impression um, that, you know, all, 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 was, uh, all was well uh, in terms of the, uh, the chronology of, of, of the, the historical books of the Old Testament. And then you have the prophetical books of the Old Testament, um, the last of which in our Bibles um, is Malachi. Um, but in a Hebrew Old Testament, in the Old, Old Testament that the Hebrews uh, put together, um, actually, the last book was Nehemiah. And so had Nehemiah ended on chapter 12, um, it would be a, a wonderful ending. But it doesn't. It ends on chapter 13. And then chapter 13, I've entitled that malfunction. <clears throat> so what, what, what's happened? Well, we learn from verse six that Nehemiah uh, left Jerusalem. He left Jerusalem for uh, around about 12 years and he comes back. And uh, two things, there's, there's, there's a, a very somber realization that he has to come to terms with. Um, he finds disorder in the priesthood and he finds disorder amongst the people. Just over a decade has passed and things have really gone down downhill. And his response uh, is characterized by several things. It's characterized by rebuke. So if you look at verse 11, for example, verse 11, he says, then contended I with the rulers and said, why is the house of God forsaken? Look at verse 25 uh, about the Sabbath. Um, no, sorry, verse 25 about the, the strange wives, the, the intermarrying. He says, and I contended with them and cursed them and plucked and smote certain of them and plucked off their hair. Hair was something that was um, probably more important in Jewish culture than in um, Western culture. Um, I say that hair has become um, more over the last five years. Uh, facial hair has become more of a thing. But 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 anyway, uh, in Jewish in Jewish um, custom, hair is is a, is, is a big thing. Uh, it, it's sort of a, a part of your uh, part of your uh, tradition and part of your uh, your personal care. Yeah, hair is hair is a big thing. It, it it's it's tied to wisdom and things like this. And so he would have been uh, he would have been getting at that. He would have been sort of un undermining that. And he he makes them swear by God. He makes them make an oath. That's that's his response is is to rebuke them. And well, might he rebuke them? When um, when it is that we drift away, we malfunction as Christians, we should rebuke ourselves. We should give ourselves a good talking to. 
You remember what Paul says in the New Testament about keeping his body in, in subjection. It is something which requires discipline. Uh, it is something requ which requires um, a very uh, a very ruthless, uh, a ruthless working. Um, Romans talks about uh, reckoning ourselves dead to sin. Um, we are to make no provision for the flesh. Um, we are we are to be ruthless with anything that would make us malfunction as Christians. So rebuke is is necessary. Um, but his response isn't just a negative one, if you like, uh, negative in, in, a, in a sort of positive sense, because it was necessary. But his, his response isn't just negative. He, he does then follow that up with um, instruction and guidance to reinstate things as they should have been. So look at verse eight, for example. The uh, the uh, bed bed and breakfast that have been set up in the uh, precincts of the temple for for Tobiah. Um, verse eight, he says, and it grieved me sore. Therefore, I cast forth all the household stuff of Tobiah out of the chamber. Reminiscent, do not think of what the Lord Jesus did. Um, different context, different circumstances, um, but the Lord Jesus threw out the money changing tables. When he saw how the temple precincts were being abused. So I think, you know, we can give um, Nehemiah the benefit of the doubt here that this was done uh, with a similar zeal. Although it doesn't say that, but perhaps we can give him the benefit of the doubt. Verse 11, uh, regarding the, 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 the fact that the, the Levites haven't been given the portion. Um, just let me make something clear, and because I, I skipped over this in chapter 12. Let me just go back, back a second. So in chapter 12, at the beginning, you have this list of names, which I said I was going to briefly mention. So I'll mention it now because I forgot to earlier. In, in the beginning of chapter 12, verse 1, it says, Now these are the priests and the Levites that went up with Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, Sariah, Jeremiah, Ezra. And we'll stop there because I'm struggling already with the names. Anyway, the, notice what uh, Nehemiah writes here. Now, these are the priests and the Levites. What are priests and what are Levites? Priests are people from the house of Aaron, who himself was from the house of Levi, who are specially uh, dedicated to the, 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 um, the priest activities, which involved uh, sacrifices and um, working inside the temple and tending to the, the care of the, the temple, uh, the, the holy the holy place. And ultimately, the high priest, of course, was the one who on the day of atonement went into the Holy of Holies um, and, and, and uh, sprinkled the blood on the mercy seat. So the priests had a very spiritual role to play. They had priestly activities to play um, in the uh, reinstatement of this community. Uh, at, at Jerusalem. But what are the Levites? Well, the Levites are also people from the family of Levi, the tribe of Levi, but they wouldn't necessarily be from the family of Aaron. Um, and so what, what was their role? Well, their role was more practical. They, they, they had a ancillary role, a sort of a, a role that was sat on the edge of, of what was going on in the temple. They would be bringing in the frankincense from where Tobiah was staying, 
where the frankincense should have been in there, the meal offerings, all the um, all the administrative things that needed to be done in order to make the temple work as as an operation. That's what the Levites did. Uh, they did not have priestly responsibilities, so their, their focus wasn't on particularly spiritual things, although it was all kind of spiritual because it was all God's work. But it it, it wasn't the uh, sacrifices and attending to the, the the internals of the tabernacle it was more on the edges of things both though absolutely vital and there's a list given in chapter 12 which as i said earlier would bear closer study it's interesting because it appears to be contradictory with another listing in the book of nehemiah in chapter 10. the thing i would say and we'll leave it here just just with this final comment if you come across lists like this um, this is more a study for genealogies and, and, and lists in the Bible. But if you come across a study, if you come across lists in the Bible and they appear to be contradictory, um, you, you need to come at it from the angle of this. that the, the word of God is innocent until proven guilty. And you'll never prove the word of God guilty. That is to say that if you see some contradictions, it's probably that you have a lack of information or you have a lack of understanding, you have a lack of the grasp of the context, more than the fact that there is a genuine contradiction. For example, in this in this list here, the way that the names are ordered is different to chapter 10, and there is a specific deliberate um, objective in listing them differently. The, the, Nehemiah wasn't so foolish to write things down and make deliberate mistakes within, you know, from the way we see it, within a, a, a few small uh, spaces of chapters. He's, he has a deliberate purpose, and again, under the spirit of God, God's influence, in, in, in writing this list that he does here in chapter 12 um, in a slightly different way, ordering them in a slightly different uh, order, and so the takeaway from the beginning there of, of, of the chapter, chapter 12, is just this. Uh, apart from making observations, we have done that Levites and the priests um, have slightly different roles. Is that whenever you see these contradictions in the Bible, as you think they to be, as you think that them to be contradictions, um, you should hold out on the fact that actually further study and further light um, as you as you get to grips with what the writer is doing, what the objective of the writer is doing. And um, we'll see this incidentally in Matthew's gospel when we if and when um, we, we get to the genealogies of the Lord Jesus. Matthew's gospel. There are some there are some very, very peculiar uh, mistakes in inverted commas that Matthew makes, but they're not mistakes. And it's only further close study that reveals actually that Matthew is is is, is doing what he's doing with the text for a very specific purpose. So that that's just um, in, in passing there. Um, but I wanted to what what took me there in my mind uh, was the fact that um, Nehemiah in re reinstating order as it needed to be uh, reinstated. Um, he is um, dealing with these uh, these problems of the priests, the portion of the Levites. Um, in verse uh, not in verse uh, 10, he's dealing with this and he's reinstating the portion that they were entitled to. So these Levites, they didn't go out to work on a building site and earn money that way. They didn't farm and sell their produce. 
as we've said, these Levites, they were focused 100% on the business of the temple. And so unless the people of God who were out on the building site, out in the field making produce or whatever they were doing, unless they came from their villages into the city of Jerusalem and made an offering for the Levites, well, the Levites would then themselves have to go out to work. Um, we saw this in, in a similar vein earlier on in our study of Nehemiah, that people were leaving the wall. They were leaving the rebuilding of the wall because the, the, the uh, people weren't being reimbursed for their work. They weren't having provision made for them. And so we have a similar problem here. The Levites are not being given their portion. And so uh, the, it says they fled everyone to his field. They've had to go back and start growing their own food because nobody else is making it for them, uh, in effect. And so he, he reinstates the offering. Uh, verse 12, then brought all Judah the tithe of the corn and the new wine and the oil into the treasury. So they've now got food and they can now eat and they can now serve God without having to make their own food. Um, so time is pressing on. So I, I, I just need to draw this to a close. But the point is, his response is characterized by at least three things, a rebuke, a reinstatement. And then these what I've called prayers. And again, I'm giving Nehemiah the benefit of the doubt here. In verse 14, he says, remember me, O God. Verse 22, uh, remember me, O God, concerning this also and spare me according to thy greatness, the greatness of thy mercy. Uh, another prayer in verse 29 that we read together. It's more of a prayer uh, that God would judge uh, those uh, and recognize the sin of, of, of the uh, priesthood. That, that had been defiled. Verse 29, remember them, O oh my God, because they have defiled the priesthood. Um, this was the sons of Jehoiada and son of Elishab, the high priest. Um, and then in verse 20, in verse 31, he says, remember me, O oh God, for good. So it's, it's a sort of prayer. Um, and I want to give Nehemiah the benefit of the doubt there because I want to believe that he was still a praying man. Now, it doesn't actually say that he prayed. But he is conversing with God here in the midst of recording uh, the, the malfunctioning community that was uh, in Jerusalem upon his arrival back from his leave. Now, the really sad thing about this malfunction is it completely. Um, that doesn't hasn't come through there. I'll have to um, just. Uh, bring it up on my computer so I can remind myself of what I was trying to point out here. So the really sad thing about chapter 13 is that for every for every point that was made in chapter 10 about how they would submit to God's word, how they would separate from the world, how they would sustain the Sabbath, how they would support the work, there is a corresponding failure that Nehemiah detects upon his return to Jerusalem in chapter 13. Um, let's start from the ground, from the bottom up. Verse 32, supporting the work. That was chapter 10, 32. Had they support the work? No, we've seen that. They weren't supporting the Levites. Were they sustaining the Sabbath? No, we've seen from verse 31. They weren't, sorry, we've seen from verse uh, 15 that there was people coming in on the Sabbath. It's supposed to be a day of rest, but, but they weren't sustaining the Sabbath. Um, so far as not supporting the work is concerned, I've, the way I phrase that is they were self-absorbed. 
They weren't absorbed with the, the, the service of God. They were absorbed with themselves. So far as sustaining the Sabbath was concerned, they were more interested in pragmatism. Now, what does pragmatism mean? Well, pragmatism is a way of living your life whereby if you do something and it, it works, then you think that's OK. And so you just keep doing it. And that's what they were doing. And they'd done this for 70 years in the land before they went out into exile. They'd, they'd abused the Sabbath principle, which was supposed to be that you rested, just like God did uh, uh, in, in creating the, the world, not because he needed to, but because it was important for man to adopt that principle. That What they did in, for 70 years was they just lived pragma pragmatically, which was to say they abused the Sabbath. God didn't judge them. And so they just kept on doing it. And it was successful. They got more money. They become more uh, they become more um, comfortable in their lives. And that's what they were doing here. Only, only just over a decade. Nehemiah comes back and they're still living as pragmatists. They do something. It works. They're successful. And so they just keep on doing it. But God doesn't want us to be self-absorbed. He wants us to support the work. He doesn't want us to be pragmatists, just doing whatever that we feel to be successful. He wants us to do what his word says us to do. We might not have to keep the Sabbath, although we should rest. We must lay aside uh, times for rest. Um, but the point really is that uh, we don't just do whatever works and what is successful and whatever what makes life easy. We do what the word of God uh, tells us to do. And so far as separation from the world was concerned, which they said they would do in chapter 10, um, I've got a big word here as well, but they basically, from verse 23, we know that they'd started to mix things. They were trying to mix different different ideas about how to live your life as, a, as an Israelite. They were mixing with the Ammonites um, and the Moabites and the Philistines. That was in verse 23, you have the wise of Ashdod. There was, those were Philistines. And so they were mixing. Um, so they were self-absorbed. They were pragmatists. They were mixing different ideas about about uh, spiritual lifestyle. And I submit to you that so far as submitting to the word of God was concerned, which they said they do in chapter 10, they'd actually gone too far. Look at um, chapter 13, verse uh, three. And this in a Bible reading context, we, we would be able to you'd be able to say to me, well, I don't think that's right, Lloyd. And that's fine. So if you don't agree with this, it's absolutely fine. But look, look at verse three. It came to pass when they had heard the law that they separated from Israel all the mixed multitude. Now, God had not said that you had to separate all the all the mixed multitude. If you look at the uh, Pentateuch, there were provisions made for outsiders and strangers to come into the community. That was allowed, but there were certain uh, there were certain parts of the outside world that weren't allowed to come into the community, and those are mentioned uh, in verse one, the Ammonite and the Moabite. And the explanation is given and you have to look at numbers uh, to, to understand the background to that. But they had gone further. And so I put here legalism, question mark. Had they actually gone so far with this submitting to God's word that they were now actually stretching it uh, even further? Maybe not. Maybe this was good. Maybe maybe that their, their uh, ambition for. Uh, renewal here was was good. I don't know, but I, I just wonder whether they they would they had gone too far. 
So this is a this is a, a stark contrast. I think you would agree from chapter twelve, where the community was coming together. It was celebrating. It was uh, purifying itself. It was it was singing. It was celebrating. Now we have a community in crisis, and this is how the Old Testament ends. And poor Nehemiah, he says in verse chapter thirteen, verse thirty one, "Remember me, O my God, for good." And this is how the Old Testament ends. What, what, a, what a terrible way to end the Old Testament. I also think, and this is where you may disagree with me, I also think that there's a leadership crisis here as well. In chapter 2, verse 12, Nehemiah says that God had put it in his heart to go and rebuild the wall. And in chapter 7, verse 5, uh, we read this. You can turn to it with me if you want to. Chapter seven, verse five. And my God put it into my heart to gather together the nobles and the rulers and the people that they might be reckoned by genealogy. He wants to get things in order again. He wants to get the records together so we can get people back into Jerusalem and we can reinstate law and order, get this community working. Did he want to do that? No. God had put that into his heart. So we read this in chapter 2, verse 12. We read it in chapter 7, verse 5. We don't read about God putting things into his heart again. And it's particularly sad to see in chapter 13, no reference to this heart aspect. This is a big thing in the Old Testament. I think Matt's spoken on this before, the, the importance of the heart and its orientation towards God. You know, David was a man after God's own heart. And it's sad for me to see that Nehemiah seems to be making decisions which might not be driven. You may disagree. And that's fine. So this is not me being dogmatic here. It's just me putting it out there. To me, he seems to have a lack of heart. When you think about when the Lord Jesus came, he rebuked people as well. And he sought to reinstate things as well. But he didn't do it in that Old Testament way. He didn't physically pull people about. He spoke to their heart. He didn't, um, what does he do? Chapter 13, verse 25, curse them, smote them. He's, he's physically beating them um, and plucked off their hair. And ma he makes them make an oath, which is more of a mental thing than a heart thing. Now, to be fair to Nehemiah, he wasn't a priest. He wasn't a prophet. He was a governor. So in a sense, this is his job. He's an administrator. And chapter 13 makes it very clear that administrators, governors are, sorry, Romans chapter 13 makes it very clear that governors are permitted to do this. They're permitted to get physical on people. Um, so that's all well and good. For me, it, it's sad that Nehemiah perhaps um, isn't driven by heart here. And so that follows then the second point here, lack of love is an underlying motive for true obedience. In chapter one, verse five, he, he thinks about how, let me read it to you, chapter one, verse five, in his prayer to God, I beseech you, O Lord God of heaven, the great and terrible God that keeps covenant and mercy for them that love him and observe his commandments. Now, 
In the rest of the book of Nehemiah, this aspect of loving God is not really very prominent. Keeping the commandments, keeping the statutes, keeping the testimonies is there. But the love motive is absent. And I think that's a shame. Now, maybe it, I'm reading into things, in which case you can dispense with this. But if you read the whole of the Old Testament and you understand the importance of love as a motive for true obedience, then I submit to you that it's disappointing. It's perhaps telling that the absence of love as a true motive for uh, obedience, rather just um, I don't want to be too unkind to Nehemiah because I'll have to meet him one day. But rather than just sort of barking at people what the commandments were, you know, and that, that's his job. He's a governor. He's an administrator. I understand that. But it's it's sad to me that that's that's not there. And so ultimately what's what this brings us to is that Nehemiah was doing his best. Without without Christ, he doesn't have Christ. He doesn't have the heart changing person on his uh, on his uh, at his disposal. He doesn't have Christ. And so you leave Nehemiah at the end of the Old Testament. You have 400 years of silence. And what does Christ find? As one commentator who wrote to me uh, this week, who remained nameless. What do, what do you find after 400 years? You find uh, exactly the same. You find that there's disorder in the priesthood. There's disorder amongst the people. Legalism has won. Uh, if you come to the end of Ezra, which is contemporary with Nehemiah, you need to re read Ezra really alongside Nehemiah. Um, legalism is 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 kind of it's the seed plot is there. I'm not saying that Ezra and Nehemiah were legalists; they they weren't. But because they didn't have Christ, the inevitable thing that was legalism would would be the the result of it. Because the only way you can get people to do something without Christ, really is by telling them to and punishing them if they don't. And that's what the law is good at. It's good at highlighting where the, where the failure is and, uh, and, and um, stipulating what the punishment must be because of the failure. But there is a remnant still waiting. And when the law comes, there's still a remnant waiting for, for Nehemiah 13 not to be the end of the story. And so the Lord embarks on three years of service in which he underlines because of their failure, man's need. Even after the cross, there's, there's still work for him to do. 2,000 years later, even today, he's continuing as advocate to provide for our need. We're still in the sense in Nehemiah 13, and maybe you feel like that tonight. You, you, feel, you feel like your Christian life isn't all that it should be. You feel like there is failure, and you feel that you have periods of chapter 12, but then a couple of weeks later or a couple of days later or Maybe it's been a couple of years and now you feel like you're in chapter 13 and you feel like you're not making progress and you've slipped and you're not supporting. You're not uh, with our points. You're not um, submitting to God's word. You're not separated from the world. You're not observing uh, God's good advice um, uh, that, that it's meant for our well-being. You're not supporting the work. Maybe you're not giving. Uh, you know, you're not being a generous giver as God wants us to be uh, or many other things, many other aspects of Christian failure. And so you feel like you're in chapter 13, but Christ is still there. We do have the the solution. We have what Nehemiah didn't have. We have 
uh, we have Christ. And so that brings me really to this verse where we began in Romans 8, which says this, for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. The, the flesh, which was really all that Nehemiah had to work with in himself and uh, in his people, notwithstanding the, 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 the uh, activity of the spirit of God in the Old Testament. But the point that Paul is making in, in this portion of Romans is that the law was no better than the flesh in many respects, because although it was contrary to the flesh, it didn't have the vital ingredient to to fix the, the flesh or to to uh, to provide a it didn't provide the vital remedy to uh, resolve the problems of the flesh. However, God, in sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh, condemns in the flesh that we might now not walk after the flesh, but after the spirit. So we do have uh, and with this as I close, we do have what Nehemiah didn't have. We do have uh, the spirit of God. And we even struggle uh, and we're um, also waiting for that day when. After 2000 years, not 400 years, but after 2000 years, maybe or even more, Christ will come and um, the community of God will be properly reinstated without the potential ever for failure again. Um, and we long for that day, don't we, when uh, Christ will come and uh, this, this sad world in which we live. Uh, will be overcome, which is what uh, Paul is dealing with uh, later on in chapter chap Romans chapter eight, the groaning creation, uh, which which causes us to sorrow and many people sorrowing tonight. Um, but it's all working together uh, for for good. Uh, so we, we have Christ and we still struggle. We still have Nehemiah 13 moments in our life. Um, but trust that this will be an encouragement to us this evening as we as we realize this, that we do have Christ. We have all that we need uh, at, at, at this stage in God's plan of things uh, in order to um, support us in our Christian lives and get out of Nehemiah 13 <laughs> and get into the uh, the glorious gospel and the power of the cross that uh, is revealed to us in the New Testament.